Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. How are you doing, Mr. Real? Mr. Radio Free Mormon. I'm doing so good. So look at folks, me. Look I at mean, that. Look at me. Yeah. I'm in high def. Look at this. So, folks, just want to give a giant thank you to uh, a huge supporter couple, husband and wife, listeners of the program, big supporters of the program. They've been reaching out to us over the last few months. The first upgrade was to the podcast audio, and mm-hmm. uh, they upgraded our, uh, our our mediums for taking care of the audio, the machines that we use, microphones, uh, all of that kind of equipment. And then the second phase of this uh, renovation going on with Mormonism Live is our lighting and our camera equipment, which I think is, if I would love to hear the comments from those of you who are live following at the moment, uh, watching the show, that if you're really enjoying the new camera images with Radio Free Mormon and myself, Maven will have hers up and running uh, next week. And uh, if you if you think the image is much better, we'd love to hear that. If you have any criticism, we'd love to hear that. But t- thank you to the donor. It is a night and day difference and absolutely amazing. The only other thing I would add is, folks, um, this podcast survives on donations. We are able to pay Radio Free Mormon. We're able to pay Maven. Um, we really do depend on donations. And donations have not gone down incredibly, but a little bit. And we're really hoping that because I think we are the best show in Mormonism on Mormon history and uh, in uh, current events and current issues, I'm hoping that you'll support the program. All we ask is that you go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, send us uh, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. If you can do more, that's wonderful. But if folks who really enjoy the show could pay us enough that it would cost like 60 bucks a year or something. Uh, It would be deeply important uh, to keeping this work going. Um, Costs go up, inflation's up, uh, everything is more expensive. uh, And we would really appreciate if folks would jump in and support the program. We do really appreciate our donors. Those of you who do donate, thank you very much. It it is amazing to see some of you donate year after year after year. It means so much to us. Uh, We're going to keep doing great shows and uh, we're going to depend on you folks to be supporters of the program Uh, I really do think we have the best fans uh, and followers and viewers, listeners around. Uh, Without further ado, uh, RFM, anything from you before we jump into uh, whether Jesus Christ had babies or not? Well, hopefully he at least had help, though, of all the people who ever lived, maybe he was the one who needed at least. (laughs) He he probably, but as you pointed out, we were talking about in prep, uh, some of the infancy gospels of Jesus Christ, uh, he did a little harm and but he fixed a few things then too. He did. It was like that great Twilight Zone episode, the famous one with Billy Mummy, who some people correct me and say it's Moomy, but whatever, you know, uh, the kid with the powers, right? And everybody right. has to do exactly what he wants to do. And I think every day is his birthday and he gets the birthday cake. And if anybody doesn't want to watch what he wants to watch on TV, then he wishes them out into the cornfield or they become a jack in the box or they become a jack in the box and then they go into the cornfield. Yeah. He's just a watched- little kid you didn't want in your neighborhood. That reminds me, um, have you ever seen Children of the Corn? You're talking about I think fields. I made that mistake once. I know I read the book, of course, by Stephen King. Yeah, it's a movie I haven't seen in a long time. I was hoping maybe if you had seen it, I could ask you to use a line from Children of the Corn, Children of the Corn tonight and uh, throw that out as one of your movie references. Oh, I'm sorry. I won't be able to help you there. Okay. Love the sign one, behind you, one by of the his way. better efforts. Even though these cameras, by the way, this is intentional. The cameras blur the background. They come in really sharp and focused on our faces. 
but I got to say, even though your sign behind you is blurry, the color, uh, it really catches it, the color like that beautiful. other camera did not even come close to doing. Isn't that no, true? It is gorgeous, my friend. And I've got a, a purple light back behind the, uh, canopic jars, a little candle light there in the corner. And you've got a couple lights on. I think it makes for a great background. We're just super excited folks. We are. Uh, that purple light this. is your hat tip to, uh, what is it? Jacob Hansen. Is that the guy's name with the purple in the background all the time? Not intentional, but you know what? If I could use a little more Jacob Hansen in my life, so let's go with it. Well, couldn't we all really? <laughs> all right. So without further ado, let's jump into this. Um, I'm going to throw this up on the screen. What are you going to throw up on the screen tonight? There it is. Uh, there we go. Mormonism picture. Holy match. Look at this. Jesus has got that nice, sexy, passionate look on his face as he stares deep into the eyes of at least one of his wives We've covered a little bit of this um, maybe 10, 15, 20 episodes ago where we talked about a few documents that uh, mentioned about Jesus being married. But today, we I thought uh, I was in charge of this week's topic. I thought we'd lay out sort of in full uh, the information within early Mormonism specifically, but we'll get to some of the stuff in the modern moment. Uh, the idea that Jesus was married uh, to uh, Mary Magdalene is always kind of the suggestion, but there's also teachings in the church about Jesus being a polygamist, which, of course, when you're doing polygamy, the easiest way to justify it is to make Jesus a polygamist, too. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. It just occurs to me, first off, I think uh, this is the modern Mormon sexy, hunky Jesus depicted here. I mean, this is how Mormons do conceive of Jesus in the current, which is, what, 2003, October 18th. By the way, happy 150th anniversary, Bill Real. This is the 150th episode of Mormonism Live. We're still going. Look at that. Episode 150. And uh, I think I've got more ideas now for future shows than I did when we started. I know. Uh, <laughs> the Mormon church is amazing. It just keeps yeah. coming up with new things and even old things. And old but I think things. the part of Jesus here will be played is played by Jim Caviezel. He would make a good, uh, a good Jesus, wouldn't well, he? He made a great Tim Ballard. And it's kind of the same thing now. He did Jesus in the Passion of the Christ, right? Yes, and he the only thing he has left to play is Joseph Smith. Yeah, and he might make a good Joseph Smith as well. Um, someday somebody's going to make that movie, and it's not going to look good for the church. You know, I know that there were certain women, and we're going to get into this, in the New Testament that late 19th century LDS leaders identified as being wives of Jesus. And it occurs to me that there was Mary and Martha, I know, maybe Mary Magdalene, but the thing that struck me was this idea about Mary Magdalene possibly being believed to be married to Jesus. And I remember reading Jesus the Christ, and I know we're going to get to something in it, but this is different than that. I remember the lengths to which James Talmadge went when discussing the character of Mary Magdalene in order to make it really clear that she wasn't a prostitute like everybody thought. He was really mm. in there fighting for her honor, and I wonder if that's just because that's the way he saw it or because he felt he needed to defend her honor because she was married to Jesus or may have been. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get into kind of a ton of fun information around uh, Jesus and whether he was married, whether he wasn't. Of course, as you well know, the the consensus sort of among biblical criticism is that there just isn't any information to really tell us that. And so you really depend on prophets, seers, and revelators to get us there. And the first reference we hear of this that I that I know of 
is in a general conference message on October 6th, 1854. This is Mormon apostle uh, Orson Hyde, and he states a bunch of things, but towards the bottom he says, uh, she, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, sir, if thou hast uh, borne him hence, uh, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Mary, she turned herself and said unto him, uh, Rabboni, uh, which is to say master, is there not here manifested the affections of a wife? Now that's Orson Hyde's words. Is this not here manifested the affections of a wife? And my wife doesn't call me master, <laughs> FYI. So I'm not, I'm not really sure that that conclusion is necessary, but uh, maybe that's the tradition back then is for husbands to be called masters, but I don't think so. And he seems to be stretching a little bit here, but this seems to be the first reference of Mary Magdalene as at least one of the wives of Jesus Christ. Uh, any thoughts here before I go to the next one? Yeah, and he also lumps in Mary and Martha at the beginning of that quote. But this is the whole deal. As you know, this is all reverse engineered by Mormonism because there's nothing in, excuse me for just a second here, there's nothing in any of the Gospels that suggests that Jesus was married. It is There's nothing that suggests he was not married, really. It's not a question that the gospel writers seem to be interested in. One way or the other, it's not important to them. But once Mormonism, in its doctrinal restoration, captures the idea that marriage is essential to exaltation, once they did that, they basically committed themselves to the idea that Jesus must have been married. If any ordinance is necessary to exaltation up to and including marriage, and if Jesus is exalted, then Jesus must have received those ordinances that you have to receive in order to be exalted, right? It's very simple. Right. So it's reverse engineered. Once Mormonism came to this point, it became essential to be sealed and married in the temple for time and all eternity, and we all know what that means. Uh, then Jesus became married, and we start seeing the bastardization of New Testament accounts that are used as proof texts, and I use the word proof very loosely there, proof texts to support this proposition. And this is one of them, by the way, in the 18th century or 19th century Mormonism, it wasn't just that Jesus was married, it was that he had more than one wife. Because again, at this time, it is being taught that in order to be exalted in the fullest sense, you have to enter into the new and everlasting covenant, right? Of plural marriage. So if Jesus is in the top tier, he's got to have had more than one wife too. And we'll pick and choose from the few women that uh, are named in the New Testament as his possible wives. Yeah. So the next reference uh, we get in General Conference, uh, April 6, 1854, might even be from the same one. Now there was actually a marriage. And if Jesus was not the bride, they're talking about the marriage at Cana, which I'm going to let you talk about here for a moment. But now there was actually a marriage. And if Jesus was not the bridegroom on that occasion, please tell who was. If any man can show this and prove that it was not the Savior of the world, then I will acknowledge I am an heir. We say it was Jesus Christ who was married to be brought into the relation whereby he could see his seed before he was crucified. Journal of Discourses 282. There's a number of things that are going on here, and it's really interesting because what I see going on here is what happens with pretty much any religious tradition that's based on the Bible that comes into being, whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, whether it's Seventh-day Adventists, whether it's the LDS Church, the Mormon Church. And immediately they start looking at the Bible, the Old Testament, or the New Testament, 
to find prophecies that are being fulfilled in their church. In other words, their church is what the Bible predicted. So here we've got, so far we've got three Bible passages being put to play. The first is, um, I think it's John chapter 20, the resurrection scene in John where Mary comes to the tomb and thinks it's the gardener and it's not. And uh, she goes, uh, okay, I want to try and stick with the scripture rather than the interpretation put on it. So the scripture is, Jesus says to her, hold, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, right? That doesn't mean anything. But in the Mormon context, this comes to mean that she calls him master. Oh, well, she must have been married to him. Oh, he says, don't touch me. Well, that means don't embrace me. And I think a lot of people in the audience have probably heard this. Uh, don't embrace me. Sometimes it gets misquoted to the point where it doesn't say hold, comma, touch me not. It says hold me not. Hold me not, for I am not yet ascended to me. So that becomes evidence that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. And then in this last quote, you have the marriage at Cana, which is another common uh, trope in Mormonism to say that Jesus must have been the guy who was getting married. And there's no good reason for it except for the fact that we need it to be that way. In fact, I don't think there's any other Bible interpreter who comes to the text and walks away with it with that conclusion. It's just the Mormons, but I could be wrong about that. And the third thing, the third one that I had not encountered until preparing for tonight's show was from Isaiah 53. And it probably gets repeated in other scriptures, but it's from Isaiah 53 where it talks about, it's considered a messianic prophecy. It's not really about Jesus, but Christians pretty much uniformly interpret it as a prophecy of Jesus. And it says, and he shall see his seed. That's one reference from Isaiah mm -hmm. 53. He shall see his seed. So Mormons casting about for any kind of proof text, hyper-literalize a text that has already been misattributed to talk about Jesus Christ when it had nothing to do with Jesus in the first place. I hate to disappoint people on that. But then hyper-literalizing this one expression, he shall see his seed. And if he shall see his seed, then that means that Jesus literally saw his children before he died. And that's the spin being put on it there by Orson Hyde. And I just want to go back to it for a moment. This marriage at Cana, Orson Hyde gives the uh, quote in General Conference, October 6th, 1854. And I showed a couple images. I AI art create these. They're kind of cool to see Jesus looking into a woman's eyes wantonly. It's a little blasphemous probably. But uh, in that same conference, after Orson Hyde spoke, Brigham Young took the stand and he gives his president of the church prophetic approval. We have had a splendid address from Brother Hyde, for which I am grateful. I feel in my heart to bless the people all the time and can say amen to Brother Hyde's last remarks. So he is, it's not only that Orson Hyde, an apostle, spoke, it's that the president of the church, prophet, seer, and revelator, who also has a history of teaching false doctrine according to the modern church on multiple occasions, um, but Brigham Young stands up and gives tacit approval to Orson Hyde for what he taught. But is, you know, what I want to get into here is the scripture in John 2, 2. Uh, we were talking about this the other day on the phone. Uh, in the third day, there was a marriage in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Yeah. And then if we look at the New Living Translation, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. It's really hard, isn't it, RFM, to get invited to your own wedding? In other words, it's automatic. You're, you're already invited to your own wedding. You don't, you don't get invited. That's not real. And so the fact that 
Jesus and some of the disciples were invited sort of indicates that this marriage, we may not knew, let me go back here. We may not know who it's for. Remember his quote. Now there was actually a marriage. And if Jesus was not the bridegroom on that occasion, please tell who was. But what we do know is that it wasn't Jesus. Almost certainly not Jesus. Now I think that the New Living Translation is itself not a translation, but a transliteration. So it's basically just giving a modern understanding or their attempt at what Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. But yeah, I mean, it's weird language to use if Jesus is the one being married. Yeah. And you went and found a couple of things. Uh, this was Jesus hey. the Christ, James Talmadge, page 145. Please do. Sorry. I just thought... Uh, maybe with um, RFM, your professional experience. I, I thought it was interesting that they asked, if it wasn't Jesus, then please tell us who the bridegroom was. I feel like that's saying, I, I don't know if, if this was like a, a trial for a crime, say a murder. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the defense was, you know, well, it's, or I guess the prosecution was like, if it's not your guy, if it's not this guy, then tell us who did do it. Like, that's not the point. The point is, did this guy do it? Whether or not the, I, you don't have to produce the actual person who committed a crime, you know, to de- in, as a defense for your client not being there and not having done it. That's that's what came to my mind. It sort of falls into that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, huh? It's yeah. sort of that well, kind of trope. Except his his argument is evidence of absence is evidence that I'm right. Right. And so the whole thing is that, yeah, it's a ridiculous claim. It's a ridiculous claim. We're dealing with a story that does not address who is getting married? That is yeah. one of the things that is of least importance to the author. And yet here comes Orson Hyde saying, well, I say it was Jesus, and I'm not going to be budged from that position unless you can tell me who it was in a story that doesn't tell you who it was, including it wasn't Jesus. Yeah. It, it is a weird argument that is illogical and sort of a fallacy. Uh, it just doesn't hold up. Um, but that's an excellent point. It's a ridiculous uh, it's it's just puffery. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. What it means is I'm right, and I'm going to consider myself right permanently. And that's you know the typical religious stance on things. Yeah. So then we get to James Talmadge, Jesus the Christ, page one forty five. Tell us what you found here. Right, and this is interesting because there's a bit of a trajectory that goes on up until the time I joined the church when this concept is still being taught, though it's a little bit more vague and a little more veiled, and not so much in your face as Orson Hyde used to be. But James Talmadge writes uh, Jesus the Christ. It's 19 teens or something like that, 12 or 14 or 16. So we're quite a ways along. We're well into the 20th century. And he is referencing this as well, though he does it in a more veiled fashion when he writes, soon after the arrival of Jesus in Galilee, we find him and his little company of disciples at a marriage party in Cana, a neighboring town to Nazareth. The mother of Jesus was at the feast. And for some reason not explained in John's narrative, she manifested concern and personal responsibility in the matter of providing for the guests. Evidently, her position was different from that of one present by ordinary invitation. Whether this circumstance indicates the marriage to have been that of one of her own immediate family or some more distant relative, we are not informed. Mm. And then you found another one. This was a doctrinal New Testament commentary. You, by the way, you didn't have access to this and then go, hey, Bill, I'm reading this. It's in here. 
here's the point. I just want to note to folks your your giftedness, which is you read this on your mission and we're preparing a conversation around this and you gave me a call and you go, hey, I remember reading on my mission, doctrinal New Testament commentary, and I'm pretty sure there's something there we're going to want to use. And so I went and found the online version of it. Um, it is, there's a section, looks like it's page 135, uh, Jesus turns water into wine. And then I got the close up. Oh, Ooh, cool. that's a little, that's a little off though. That's um, okay. I shouldn't say it's okay because it. I can't make up the words, but um, I'll see if maybe I can, I can read them from the that. one before. By the way, if you go back, thank you very much. It's really not that surprising. I'll tell you the magic trick. The magic trick is if there's anything written by an LDS general authority prior to, I don't know, 1990, that describes in any detail or even touches upon the story of the wedding at Cana, yeah. they're going to drop some hints. Yeah. And this was yep. the same thing that happened here. Did you notice what James Talmadge did? In his argument, he actually concluded that whoever was getting married was a relative of Mary. Yeah, it couldn't Look have just been a friend. Line. Right, it Look couldn't be that. just a friend or an acquaintance. Right, can you read that last line? Yeah, whether this circumstance indicates the marriage to have been that of one of her own immediate family or some distant relative, we are not informed. So it has to be a relative, either immediate or more distant. Of course, he's yeah. focusing on the immediate and he who has ears to hear let him hear, but right. that's how he's broaching the subject so that people will know what he's talking about if they know what he's talking about. Yeah. And so then this uh, doctrinal new Testament commentary, which Bruce R. McConkie is the author of in, in a sense, maybe a compiler or editor is better framing for it, but he's, I think the book is set up and I think you said this as well. The book is set up to condense all of his father-in-law's teachings. No, actually that's, um, Doctrines of Salvation. Okay, you sorry about that. Of that one. That's the one that he's the editor of Joseph Fielding Smith's teachings and categorizing them amongst three volumes. Yeah, this is the doctrinal New Testament commentary or doctrinal, however you say it, uh, dealing with the Gospels. There's three volumes, and it recapitulates the entire King James Version of the New Testament, but it breaks it up into different parts and then has his commentary on it. Afterwards, so after the part about the marriage at Cana, let's see. John's record of the marriage in Cana is fragmentary. It does, of course, it's fragmentary, right? Why? Because it's not containing expressly that Jesus was married. <laughs> right. It's fragmentary. It does not by any means tell the whole story. Couldn't. Children. From what is recorded, however, we learn, number one, Mary seemed to be the hostess at the marriage party. Mary, she was the hostess with the mostess. The one in charge, the one responsible for the entertainment of the guests, which by which he means more wine it was she who recognized the need for more wine who sought to replenish the supply who directed the servants to follow whatever instructions jesus gave considering the customs of the day of which bruce armaconkey is obviously an expert it is a virtual certainty that one of mary's children was being married he takes the leap that james e talmage doesn't james at least leaves it open to it being a distant relative bruce armaconkey is certain that it is one of the immediate family. And I, you know, to some extent, I understand the, what he's trying to get at, which is if you're the mother at the wedding, you're trying to make sure everything's right. You're the one who's looking after everything, trying to make sure all the things stay filled and all the cups are, are topped off and no dish runs out. That sort of makes sense to me. But again, the New Testament itself tells us that Mary, Jesus, and some of the disciples are called to the wedding 
which seems to be that they're on the guest list, not the groom or the bride. Right. Jesus and five of the disciples come to the wedding. And um, I can tell you why it is he's a lot more certain than James Talmadge was. And the, the answer to that is because Bruce Herman McConkey was not James Talmadge's son-in-law. No, I thought, well, yeah, I could have come up with a different phrase. that would have been a little more. <laughs> what little did more you come up with? Uh, that Bruce R. McConkie is sort of an arrogant prick sometimes when it comes to his knowledge about the gospel. And by the way, he's been proven wrong by the modern church numerous times at this point. Yes, it's it's unfortunate. I'm glad he didn't live to see that at least. But really, I don't think that Bruce R. McConkie ever had an original idea in his head. Everything that he's written, and I've read most of it, is just a recapitulation not only of himself over and over again, but of his father-in-law. Um, Joseph Fielding Smith. And yeah. Joseph Fielding Smith wrote most of, he added a few things, but they're mostly opinions. Man on the moon, you know, Joseph didn't use a seer stone, those kinds of things. But he's a recapitulation of his dad, Joseph F. Smith. Yeah. So it's a, it's a strain or a, um, a line, like a line of cases. It's a line of doctrine in the LDS church, which has sort of evaporated since then. There are no longer any scriptorians amongst the leadership of the church, at least not so as I can tell. And there haven't been since 1985 when Bruce R. McConkie passed away. Yeah. In the book, there are four or five, six points, but it's only the first two that that applied here. And so number two. There was a bit of a di digression on my part. I apologize. No you're, no, you're good. Right. So number one ends with, considering the customs of the day, it is a virtual certainty that one of Mary's children, <clears throat> Jesus, was being married. Number two. Jesus also had a close personal interest in and connection with the marriage and the subsequent festivities which attended it. He, and apparently at least five of his disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, it's an interesting way of spelling Nathaniel, were called to attend. Since the shortage of wine occurred near the close of the festivities, and since these commonly lasted from seven to 14 days, it is apparent that Jesus's party was remaining for the entire celebration, i.e. Jesus and his five disciples. Seemingly, also, he had some personal responsibility for entertaining the guests and felt an obligation to supply them with added refreshments. So Jesus basically is what he's saying in these five disciples, where they were there till the end of the party and they were entirely wasted. Yeah, and the other thing the audience will see later on is that it. I also understand where, in terms of evidence, Bruce R. McConkie gets the idea from not just his father-in-law uh, sort of maybe mentioning it in kind of an off-the-cuff, away-from-the-church curriculum books that he's written, but we'll get to later. There's an official sort of reference inside the church where uh, Joseph Fielding Smith gets involved. But he has Jesus being so focused on what's going on at this wedding. It's so important to him to make sure everything's taken care of. And again, he doesn't say it explicitly but implicitly he seems to be saying jesus is the the groom folks i'm just you just have to read between the lines oh exactly that's exactly what he's saying it's virtual certainty it's one of mary's children is number one and number two jesus had a close personal interest in the marriage yeah yep and then um six months later hyde would again teach that jesus was married but now it's more than just mary it is multiple women so he got away with it Brigham Young gave the stamp of approval. So now the next general conference, let's see if we can go a little further. Quote, I discover that some of the Eastern papers represent me as a great blasphemer 
because I said in my lecture on marriage at our last conference that Jesus Christ was married at Cana of Galilee, that Mary, Martha, and others were his wives, and that he begat children. Um, and then he goes on to kind of give approval to that. So I, I had AI art come up with Jesus as a polygamist. And I'll tell you, man, he's, he's doing pretty well there, I, I got to say. That's a handsome bunch of children. That's a, yeah, those, those are all hopefully over 18, but I think most biblical scholars say if there was a Mary mother of Jesus, she most certainly would have been somewhere probably in the age of 12 to 16 years old Mm. when she carried the son of God. Uh, So there is a history in that family, you know, if you know what I mean. Well, this is Jesus and his children though, right? No, 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 no. This is Jesus and his polygamous wives. Oh, 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 okay. But, you know, Mormonism and if would probably give permission for Jesus to have girls under the age of 18 because it did it. So I, I wouldn't see Mormonism and its early leaders having a problem if they were children. But nope, these are the polygamous wives of Jesus Christ done by uh, Midjourney, the AI art generator. Uh, so there's that. There's one more. All I can Almost, say is that whatever LDS church leaders have done, Jesus did before them. Yeah, this looks like, uh, what's the actor's name? Of course, he doesn't have long hair, but he looks sort of like... Uh, Brad Cooper? Yeah. Uh, yes, I think so. That's who I was thinking of. Yeah, um, he's got the uh, Leonard Bernstein uh, controversial nose thing going there, too. The The next reference is in the book, The Seer, page 159. Uh, one thing is certain, that there were several holy women that greatly loved Jesus, such as Mary and Martha, her sister, and Mary Magdalene, and... Jesus greatly loved them and associated with them much. He didn't just love them. He greatly loved them. Yeah. And when he arose from the dead, instead of showing himself to his chosen witnesses, the apostles, he appeared first to these women, or at least to one of them, namely Mary Magdalene. Now it would be natural for a husband in the resurrection to appear first. See, again, you throw Mormonism right into it, don't you? Mm -hmm. Now Mm -hmm. it would be natural for a husband in the resurrection to appear first to his own dear wives and afterwards show himself to his other friends. If all the acts of Jesus were written, we no doubt should learn that these beloved women were his wives. So there it is, declared Joseph, or, uh, Jesus Christ as a polygamist. And then... Um, oh, by Mormon- the way, Bill. Please. You're doing great, and I love these. And I hate to interrupt, and please... Uh, You're good. Okay. Uh, Rebecca Bibliotech had done this funny meme about this. I thought it'd be okay to... Is it okay to stick it in here? In a nice way. Is that it there? Yes. It's Jeez. a meme. <laughs> it's a meme that says it's got the women at the tomb. There's no Jesus there. Jesus was married. No, wait a second. How do we? Okay. It, part of that's missing at the top. It's supposed to say, how do we know that Jesus was married? Okay. That's the part that's missing. at the. How do we know that Jesus was married? Because he faked his own death. And they got the women at the tomb. It's empty. And one of them's going, well. And the other one is looking out from the empty tomb going, that son of a bitch. It wouldn't be the first guy who uh, faked his own death to get as far away from a wife or two or three as he could. I guess not. Do you know of any? Are you speaking of anybody in particular, Bill? No, no, no. I just know that when... Um, uh, throughout history, especially before there were uh, identification records that were sort of traveled with you, uh, that that sort of thing did happen from time to time, that people would just disappear and um, sort of do it in circumstances that left it open to maybe they had uh, maybe they had died, but really just tried to get away. 
and again, I don't mean any negative to women. There's plenty of women who don't can't stand our shit either as men. So uh, it, it goes both directions. But I think that has happened plenty of times in history. I can think of at least three that fall under that category. Yeah. All right. Let me uh, let me throw back up. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm having a, a no, better no, I, time tonight than you are, Bill. That's because you have all the responsibility of, of moving the show <laughs> along. And I have the responsibility of thwarting you in your mission. Yeah. And I, I understand if I'm not mistaken, how many times have you been divorced radio free Mormon? Uh, twice, but don't forget the failed engagement. Yeah. So there are three women in your life who <laughs> not right. fans. You never faked your death though. I can't say if I have actually, because if I did, it would undo the whole purpose for having done it in the first place. See second hence, anointing. Hence the moniker radio free Mormon. <laughs> Hard to find a guy with the initials RFM. All right. So uh, Mormon apostle there, married. Let's go to the next one. I got a few more pictures here of AI art. Nice selfie with his wives. And that's like Tom Hiddleston. Look at that. A different group of women, it looks like, too. Those weren't the the same uh, ladies from the past picture. Here's the another one. of Loki. Yeah. Another one that looks uh, kind of cool. I had one that I didn't put up. I'll just mention it. It had Jesus with children, and he had his arm around like a girl about the age of 12 and she had a, her belly was definitely pregnant and she was kind of holding it like women do with their pregnant belly. And Jesus had the smile on his face. And I said, no, I don't want to give Mormonism too much of a, of a nod and a wink. So bad artificial intelligence. Yeah. No donut. Uh, July 22nd, 1883 Wilford Woodruff recorded the words of Joseph F Smith in his journal evening meeting, Prayer by E. Stevenson. Joseph F. Smith spoke one hour and 25 minutes. He spoke on the marriage in Cana at Galilee. So there you see that Bruce gets it from father-in-law, gets it from dad. So yes. um, he spoke on the marriage of Cana and Galilee, thought Jesus was the bridegroom and Mary and Martha the brides. He did not think that Jesus who descended, I'm going down to the bottom now, descended through polygamous families from Abraham down and who fulfilled all the law, even baptism by immersion would have lived and died without being married. So again, you just retrofit Mormonism to the new Testament because you know, Mormonism is true. And hence you have no choice. If Jesus is an exalted being that he received all the ordinances, including sealing uh, for time and all eternity. Yeah. I think he was a treasure digger too. <laughs> you would have, yeah, you'd almost have to have that. Wouldn't you? Um, this All right, so we'll show the letter here in a moment, but this is, we're getting closer to sort of the modern moment. Didn't he catch a fish that ended up having a, a coin in its mouth? Coin in its mouth. Mm -hmm. Treasure and digging. Treasure yeah. fishing. Treasure fishing. And he didn't put a stone in a hat, bury his face into it, and exclude all light, but he did find buried treasure in the gut of a fish regardless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a letter dated March 17th, 1963, Joseph Fielding Smith was asked if the phrase, he shall see a seed, which you mentioned earlier, mentioned Isaiah 53.10, meant that Christ had children. In the letter, it also mentioned that only through temple marriage can we receive the highest degree of exaltation and dwell in the presence of our Heavenly Father, and that since Christ came to set the example, is it correct to assume that Jesus was married? When Smith responded to this letter, he held the position of an LDS apostle. He would later become Mormonism's 10th president uh, after the death of David O. McKay in January 1970. So here's the letter. And by the way, this was the scriptorian for the church. He was the Book of Mormon answer man. 
He even had a recurring series of articles in the improvement era, answers to gospel questions. So if he said something, there's nobody who spoke for the church as much as Joseph Fielding Smith spoke for the church. Yeah. And you and I were talking about this earlier. The church has always sort of had somebody. Uh, Orson Pratt seemed to be really intelligent. James Talmadge, I think. B.H. Roberts, you mentioned in our call. Uh, then you get yeah, John Widstow. Then you move into uh, Joseph F. Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie. But over the last, say, 20, 30 years, who's been that guy, RFM? Who's the guy among the top 15 who you would bet on knows his scriptures really well and knows the history of the church really well? None of them. For me, it's a question of who knows the least, at least from what they present as. Obviously, I don't know what's in their brains, but I know what comes out of their mouths at conference. And it doesn't represent any kind of scriptural familiarity, at least from my point of view. Yeah. And I, I suggested maybe Neil A. Maxwell. And you were like, no, he's sort of more of a philosopher. Uh, maybe you're talking about Madsen at the time, Truman Madsen. But Neil A. Maxwell sort of puts himself forward as that guy, I think, in his day, in the 80, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but I yeah. don't think he really filled that either. People fell in love with Neil A. Maxwell, and I tried to read his books because I wanted to experience this love of Neil A. Maxwell and discovered to my disappointment that really all he was doing was dressing up the same old threadbare concepts and fancy packaging. Yeah, yeah. So on the screen, you've got the letter there to the left. It's the the question from a member. The, the gentleman's name is J. Ricks Smith. Uh he is writing the leadership of the church. He's actually writing President Smith himself. He's asking the question about, was Jesus married? For instance, you see uh, sort of about two-thirds of the way down of the, of the typed-out part, what is meant by he shall see his seed? Does this mean that Christ had children? And I'll zoom in here so we get a little closer. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, President Smith, who's just an apostle at the time, but he's so recognized as the scriptorian that when people would write letters, he's the one they write them to. President Smith writes in uh, in his own handwriting down below the answers to the two questions the guy uh, requests answers to. And he asterisked the first one with one asterisk, and he asterisked the second one with two. And you can see about halfway down the type, he puts the one asterisk there. So that's where answer one would go. And then down at the very bottom right, he puts the uh, the two asterisks. Um, and I'm going to, maybe do you mind taking that off the screen for just a second? Thank you. Um, so the first question here, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and he hath, he hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, which you mentioned earlier. And then the second question, um, Christ came here to set the example and therefore we believe that he must have been married. Are we right? And then President Smith down below, there's the letter again. So you can see that President Smith's handwriting's down there. First asterisk, Mosiah 15, 10 through 12. Do you remember what that what that said in that scripture, RFM? I wasn't That's really going to be where it's expressing uh, where, where Abinadi is uh, talking about modalism and how it is that the Father and the Son are one. And I think maybe the seed is mentioned there as well, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. Uh, Mosiah chapter 15, 10 through 12. And then his second answer, the two asterisk about whether Jesus was married, he writes uh, a resounding yes there, exclamation point. But then he says, but do not preach it. 
the Lord advised us not to cast pearls before swine, signed Joseph uh, F or Joseph Fielding Smith. And you said that it. Uh, so here's 10 through 12. I've got it up here. If you, please. Were you going to put it up on the screen? No, 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 no. You go ahead. Okay. And now I say unto you, who shall declare his generation? So this is an exposition on a passage from Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Behold, I say unto you that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And now what say ye? And who shall be his seed? Okay, it's going to define what seed is, which is not his literal children, obviously, because it's the Book of Mormon, which is Mormonism in its inception. Behold, I say unto you that whosoever has heard the words of the prophets, yea, all the holy prophets who have prophesied concerning the coming of the Lord, I say unto you that all those who have hearkened unto their words and believe that the Lord would redeem his people and have looked forward to my gosh, let's get to the point here. I say unto you, okay, these are his seed. So, so not his children, but anybody all those who, who have hearkened the unto the words of the prophets are his seed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really what it's saying. It's not saying he's saying it's not literal. Read your freaking book of Mormon, man. Yeah. These guys contradict each other quite a bit, don't they? I mean, you we sort of know that already, but he's saying like, no, seed is anybody who follows the gospel. Meanwhile, in an earlier reference, there's sort of this idea about seed, and we'll get to one here in a moment that's actually uh, more trying to lean on the fact that Jesus did have children, and we know who's connected to that. But his second answer is yes, Jesus right. was married, but he says, he says, do not preach it. The, the Lord advised us not to cast pearls before swine. And we were talking uh, beforehand, or it reminded, I think, us of a little quote, right? There's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time. There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Isn't Joseph Fielding Smith here trying to give this guy an answer, but tell him to hide it from everyone else? That quote by Elder Ballard has rarely been more funny than when played over the image of this statement by Joseph Fielding Smith in his own handwriting saying, yes, Jesus was married, but do not preach it. Do not preach it. We don't cast our pearls before swine. In other words, keep it hidden. Don't tell anyone. It's secret knowledge just for you. Yeah. I think with the Mosiah 15, I think that what Joseph Fielding Smith was doing was he had already investigated the subject. I'm sure there are a few gospel subjects that he did not investigate at one time or another. And what he felt was that the scripture in Isaiah 53 does not support this literalist reading that he sees his own seed because it says, when you shall make his soul a sacrifice for sin, then he shall see his seed right? And the Book of Mormon does already spiritualize that. It interprets it in a non-literal way, which is much more common, I'm sure, amongst all Christians, as it was probably amongst the early Mormons. But then you get on to this other thing about eternal marriage being necessary for salvation, and that's the argument that Joseph Fielding Smith agrees with and says, yes, but do not preach it. Right. Right. All right. So then next, uh, there's the Mosiah one that you read. I actually had it in there. I apologize. I should have put that up. Uh, LDS Apostle Rudger, am I saying that right? Rudger? Rudger. Rudger. Clausen wrote the following in his diary for July 2nd, 1899. 
This being the day for the solemn assembly called by the first presidency, a large number of brethren were admitted to the temple at 10 o'clock. There were about 700 present. President Snow read section 86, Book of the Doctrine and Covenants, said, We are the sons and daughters of God and descendants of the prophets and apostles, meaning the, the prophets and apostles of old, he goes, what I say is as true as God lives, and this is in the Ministry of Meetings, Apostolic Diaries of Roger Clausen, edited by Stan Larson, who did the uh, phenomenal write-up on uh, the first vision by which we learned that Joseph Fielding Smith cut that out and hid it away. He's the author mm. of that article. Right. So a, a great historian uh, and author within Mormonism. And then... Uh, this is a same. This is a different book, I think. Ministry of Meetings, the Apostolic Diaries. No, maybe it's the same thing. Ministry of Meetings, Apostolic Diaries of Roger Clausen, edited by Stan Larson. This is in a different section. Mm. Uh, wrote the following in his diary for July second, eighteen ninety nine. President George Q. Cannon also spoke spoke upon the law of tithing, among other things. He said, "Quote: There are those in this audience who are descendants of the old twelve apostles." And shall I say it? Yes, descendants of the Savior himself. His seed is represented in this body of men. Maven. I, the nepotism makes a lot more sense now. Mm. You don't just, want to get off it. that bloodline. Right, right. It's it's just always from, from all the way back then, the disciples and their children have just always been controlling everything all the way down. There you go. Yeah. Answer. Yeah. Bill, mm. uh, if you could, thank you for that, Maven. I was just looking up something else. It's very important that you understand that, um, and by that I mean everybody in the audience, which I am just understanding as I'm doing the research here, which is that this entire doctrine is based in an understanding of Doctrine and Covenant section 86, the last several verses. Are you able to bring that up? I have it on my screen, but I can't put it on oh, our yeah, screen. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can throw it up here really quick. It'll take me just a second. Section 86 of the DNC. Right, because 86? President Snow read section 86 of the Book of Doctrine and Covenants, writes Rudger Clausen in this meeting on July 2nd, 1899. And then, after he read it, President Snow said, we are the sons and daughters of God and descendants of the prophets and apostles. There's a reason he says this, and that it's connected to section 86. If you can go down to verse 8. The first that. part is a, is a new uh, take on the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, if you go to eight, okay? Therefore, you ready, Bill? Mm -hmm. Therefore, thus saith the Lord unto you, with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers. Now, the Lord said unto you, with whom? With the Lord? The priesthood hath continued through the lineage of of your fathers, for ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh, literal, and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. Therefore your life and the priesthood have remained, and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. Sounds like there was still more restoration to go, but this is relatively early on. Therefore, blessed are ye if you continue in my goodness, a light unto the Gentiles, and through this priesthood a Savior unto my people Israel. The Lord has said it. Amen. So here's this whole concept of a righteous, holy lineage that holds the priesthood that has continued among humanity 
since its inception, we find a reference to this in the Pearl of Great Price too, that the priesthood has been on the earth and will be on the earth forever in a sacred line that is never apostatized from in this line of scriptures and this line of thought. There is no apostasy from this line, but it's secret, it's sacred, it's hidden from the world. And this is the holy line that may so or may I, not have the holy blood. Yeah, I think that goes really well with what Maven said, which is there may be, because again, they don't tell us everything. Just like Joseph Fielding Smith said, here's the answer for you, but don't go saying this to anybody else. We know about the second anointing. We know about the double speak that happens on so many occasions. It's very possible, and I'm just throwing out sort of uh, sort of some conjecture here, but it's very possible that these guys do have a rule inside the top 15 for the reason for why nepotism is a big part of what goes on, which is we need to keep this in the sacred bloodline. It, it would be interesting to see as time goes on, say we get another 20 years down the road, because all of the guys in the top 15 will be dead in 20 years. It will be interesting to see if any of the new people who are called in their place are African-American or from Africa itself and they are people of color, it'll be interesting because even the folks who have uh, Hispanic lineage, I don't know about Elder Gong, but um, I know he's married to a Caucasian woman. I don't know what their connections are, but even on those, I'm skeptical that if we dig into it, we would find that they have familial connections mm that tie into past leaders or current leaders of the church beside themselves. Well, I think it's a safe bet based on what I've seen over 45 years of being a member of the church, that the leadership at the top levels is not chosen based upon their leadership qualities. <laughs> that much you've got, my friend. Uh, in fact, it might be the opposite of something like that. Uh, so descendants of the prophets in the apostles, and then, uh, Rugger Clausen again, there are those in this audience who are descendants. We said that his seat is represented in this body of men. No, I don't think we said that. Now he's at the same meeting and he's quoting from President George Q. Cannon, oh, gotcha. who also Sorry. spoke apparently. Yeah, this is in addition to Wilfred Woodruff. What does he say, Bill? President George Q. Cannon also spoke upon the law of tithing, among other things. And he said, there are those in this audience who are descendants of the old 12 apostles. And shall I say it? Yes, descendants of the Savior himself. His seat is represented in this body of men. So there's that. Uh, Heber C. Kimball also claimed that some of the LDS apostles were descendants from Jesus. He says, uh, do you know the 12? This is middle of the middle of the paragraph there. Do you know the 12? You do not. If you did, you would begin to know God and learn that those men who are chosen to direct and counsel you are near kindred to God and to Jesus Christ himself. Sorry, to Jesus Christ for the keys, power, and authority of the kingdom of God are in that lineage. This would also give credibility to what I just said and to what Maven just said and to what you sort of pointed out there from DNC, uh, was it 86? Mm -hmm. It's It seems as though at least at one time in the church, there was a definitive effort to call men from a particular lineage because they were from the bloodline of Jesus Christ. It is interesting, and I think that Maven may have hit on something very important with that observation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in recent years, you know, there was, uh, what's the name of the Tom Hanks, the, the, uh, Da Vinci oh, Code. Da Vinci Code. Thank you. And when that movie came out, one of the things that movie poses as one of its ideas is that Jesus was married. And mm -hmm. when that movie came out, Vern, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his middle name, but Gross Venor Swanson. So Vern Swanson, oh. 
wrote a book titled Dynasty of the Holy Grail, Mormonism's Sacred Bloodline. I haven't read the book, but what he posits here is the same quotes that we've been going over. He he goes, he sort of suggests this idea that there is a sacred bloodline from Jesus's children down to the modern moment. And uh, in this book, he shares the quotes that we've used. I haven't read the book, so I don't know the full scope of it, but he covers this sort of same idea that Maven's sort of hitting on, which is that the leaders of the church are called from a particular bloodline because they believe it's Jesus is Christ, Jesus Christ's own bloodline, his own children's descendants. The church responded to this, both the movie and then when this book sort of came out. Um, I want to just note this is a separate guy. So the next thing we'll get here is the church. But this gentleman was asked about the book I just showed you from a Mormon author. An Australian theologian, Philip Johnson, author of several books on Jesus Christ, an expert on new religious movements, quote, it's one thing to claim that, that you're the that your leaders are the descendants of Jesus. It's another to prove that this is indeed the case. I can claim I'm the living descendant of Julius Caesar, he said. It's very difficult to take those sorts of allegations seriously. So um, he's from across the waters, but he was actually in Utah doing some sort of like book tour. And I, I don't know if it was the Salt Lake Tribune or one of the other papers secured him to ask him questions about this book that was written by a Mormon author around the time of the Da Vinci Code. And he makes a good point. Like you can claim anything. And if it's not evidence one way or the other, it's just a claim made out of kind of whole cloth. Um, nobody can prove you wrong. So you really get to say anything, but it, it's never going to get taken seriously. Right. And this was just a Mormon manifestation of a very, very popular, though controversial position that was set forward, I think most famously in the book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which I can't remember when it came out, the 60s, the 70s, maybe. But it was a big deal, and it was talking about their, that Jesus had kids, and they had kids, and you know that line of Jesus is with us today. And I think it was a similar, I don't know if it was a similar thing in uh, Da Vinci Code. I found that, um, that movie mindlessly boring, believe it or yeah. not. I hope I'm not Same, offending any way. fans there. Yes. But uh, yeah, and uh, but I know it, it dealt with the idea that Jesus was was married, and um, but yeah, Mormonism has incorporated this into itself. Now we don't talk about it much anymore, and the stuff about Jesus's descendants being in the church, that holy bloodline being among the leadership of the church, I'm not sure I've actually ever heard anybody talk about it. I've read some things now. And by the way, that whole thing about the priesthood and that line, lineage, remember, uh, Bill, from the end of section 86? This also, oh. in Moses chapter 6, there's a strange thing that goes along with it. Because it's talking about the book of remembrance. Remember that book that uh, Adam had? Book of remembrance okay. was kept in verse 5, mm -hmm. and the which was recorded in the language of Adam. Mm -hmm. And by them their children were taught to read and write, having a language which was pure and undefiled. And now verse 7. Do you have that on the screen? Yeah, verse 7. Can you read that? No, this is a, not Doctrine and Covenants 86. This is Moses 6. Oh, let's, let's do Moses I think this is important 6. enough to wait for a second and get it up there on the screen. This is one of those strange things that when you read it and you think about it, you go, how does that make sense? With the idea of an apostasy. This is a different strain of thought here that doesn't go along with the apostasy line but goes along with the lineage line. Now this same priesthood, which was in the beginning, shall be in the end of the world also. Yeah. 
It was in the beginning, shall be in the end of the world also. And there's another, I'm not sure, maybe that's not the right uh, passage that I have found, but there's one that suggests that it will be in the world unto the end thereof. In other words, continuously. Not that it'll be restored in the end, but that it yeah. will, there'll be verse a continuous 30. chain. What? <clears throat> for, voice, uh, verse 30, and this is a decree which I have sent forth Thank in you. the beginning of the world from my own mouth, from the foundation thereof, and by the mouths of my servants. Thy fathers have I decreed it, even as it shall be sent forth in the world unto the ends thereof. Is that the one? Mm, no, not quite. But anyway, it's the same idea that there's a, a line of priesthood as well that will continue and it will be hit up from the world, but only God knows about it. And it will be, um, the leadership of the church will be descended from that line. Um, when I took a religion class in uh, college, we studied the world religions. Uh, one of the things we went into was Islam. And Islam does the same thing that Mormonism does. If you remember, everybody will know this, but when, when Joseph Smith dies, there's a succession crisis. And there's several people who make claims to the leadership of the church. Brigham Young ends up uh, getting the largest faction of folks to follow him. They go out west to Utah. Years later, a faction of saints who stayed in Nauvoo join up with the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with Joseph Smith III because Joseph Smith III sort of allegedly, I think it's actually true, but I don't want to say it's true because I don't know well enough, but Joseph Smith III received a blessing uh, in the church and was essentially told that he would be the leader of the church after Joseph Smith, his dad. And uh, there's this discrepancy sort of between the RLDS church and the LDS church, who seem to be the two factions that had the strongest claims to uh, carry on the work after Joseph Smith, that the decision is like, do we call the closest followers of the church as the leaders, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, which as you pointed out in apostolic coup d'etat isn't exactly the truth either. But the idea of following the top leadership of the church when the leader dies or following the children of that movement. And in Islam, the exact same thing happens. When Muhammad dies, there is this deep disagreement about whether his closest associates should take over the leadership or whether his family should take over the leadership. And it's how you end up with the Sufis and the Sunnis. One comes from uh, the associate line and one comes from the family line. And to this day, they're completely split over who should lead. And I just think it's interesting in religion that these same sorts of patterns and overarching themes seem to happen that when the leader founder dies, the discrepancy at times seems to be between the closest associates and the family. Not that that's important here, um, but it does play a part because Mormonism does still, it, it dismisses Joseph Smith III, but it definitely caters to the Smith lineage that stays with Brigham Young. For instance, Joseph Fielding Smith, Joseph F. Smith, George Albert Smith, uh, Bruce R. McConkie as an in-law, but still sort of connected to that line. I think Elder Ballard is connected to Joseph Smith's lineage, yeah. uh, and there are other leaders as well. That lineage, that lineage seems very important. Yeah, so here's the thing, and I was thinking about this earlier, because we do know that there were some teachings from leaders of the church in general conference about Jesus not only being married, but having children, and that holy bloodline being represented in leadership of the church. We know it was taught, we know it didn't last a long time, and we know we don't hear about it anymore. And so my wondering was, why did this 
um, idea, so radical, so bold, uh, have just this blossom, and then all of a sudden, it went completely dark. And I think the reason may be because of the reorganized church and the fact that the LDS church captured the lineage of Hiram, by and large, in the patriarchs, but the reorganized church captured the lineage of Joseph. Yeah. As represented in their presidents up until relatively recently. So I think that the church would naturally be inhibited in making the argument that the leaders of the church are descended through Jesus by means of the Joseph Smith family when that argument would favor the reorganites better than the ones making it. Yeah, and, and there is some truth to when that succession crisis happened and the years following. Brigham Young did make an attempt, several of them, I think, to bring Joseph Smith III back in. Like, hey, you're going to be under me, but we want you back here. Like, you are the right lineage. You are the you are the offspring of Joseph Smith. Uh, that never happened. But the fact that Brigham made some effort to do that sort of indicates that he also sort of understood that Joseph Smith's bloodline maybe had some sort of claim to leadership. Yes, uh, if we take him at face value, and that's always a questionable thing to do. With Mormon leaders, um, yeah. He recognized Hiram's bloodline as well yeah. as superior to his own, and was, I'm sure, crestfallen to have to report that they both died together. And when it comes to Joseph Smith III, who did go out to Utah in order to convert, I think Brigham Young felt quite safe in saying that he would have the right by birth to uh, preside in the church, given the fact that Joseph Fielding's, uh, Joseph Fielding, Joseph Smith III argued that his dad never practiced polygamy and that polygamy was abom an abomination before God. And there was very little chance that Joseph Smith III was going to abandon that teaching, which he, which he would have to do in order to become the president of the church. Right. Yeah. So, so there's some, that's probably another episode that I think would be fun to go into is sort of that relationship between Brigham Young and the early reorganites. Uh, and I don't really know the full story behind the, because somebody said in the comments that Mark Hoffman forged Joseph Smith III's blessing as if that was a complete fabrication. But as you and I both know, Mark Hoffman almost always took a grain of truth and then forged a document. And I know, I don't know that we have any record of it, but I know there's at least some sources out there that say Joseph Smith III did get a blessing and that leadership was promised to him. Yeah, the problem with Joseph Smith wasn't figuring out who was supposed to be his successor. The problem was he had denominated five or six of them over the years. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay. Oh, by the way, have you yes. talked about... Okay, you're going to continue with Da Vinci. I just didn't want to miss uh, Last Temptation of Christ. No, no, no. So the Deseret News, when... When this book comes out and the Da Vinci Code comes out, the church, like it sometimes does, feels the need to comment, and it decides it's going to put out what the official stance of the church is, and uh, it's going to have its foot in its mouth again, I promise you, audience, as we get to the next set of documents. Deseret News, LDS do not endorse the claims in Da Vinci. LDS doctrine does not endorse claims made in a popular book and movie that Jesus Christ was married. The Da Vinci Code, which opens today at the Cannes Film Festival in France. I think it's called Cannes. Sorry, Cannes. It's okay, but is, is that honestly part of the article, that first line, LDS doctrine does not endorse claims? 
made uh, in a popular it, book, the movie and movie that Jesus is, Christ is married. It is. In fact, let me see if I can pull up the actual link. Because that's like four Pinocchios right there in that one line. Yeah, let me, uh, I'm opening up the document right now. And there we're supposed is. to listen to the Deseret News pronouncements on what is and is not LDS doctrine, and they can speak for what it is and isn't, even as they lie through their teeth to their readers. Yeah. LDS do not endorse claims in Da Vinci Code. So there it is. Shame on you, Deseret News. But I wanted it to be a little easier to read. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the Da Vinci Code, which opens today at the Cans. I think it's, yeah, Cans. That's how I hear it said when okay. you know, they're having their film. I'm sure. That, I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm definitely I get not invited there this. frequently. Uh, the film festival in France has evoked a lot of discussion from critics and Christians everywhere. The fictional story by author Dan Brown focuses on the premise that Jesus Christ was married to Mary Magdalene and fathered a child. Dale Bills, a spokesman for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, said in a statement released Tuesday, "Quote: The belief that Christ was married." has never been official church doctrine. It is neither sanctioned nor taught by the church. Is. While it, say, what the definition of is is, or what are we? What are we? Oh, yeah. He's speaking present tense. He's yeah. very, very specifically limiting the truth of his statement to right now. It is neither sanctioned nor taught by the church, while it is true that a few church leaders in the mid-1800s, now wait a minute, let me go back here. Mm-hmm. Let's go back a couple more. What's the date on that letter? March 17th, 1963. St. Patty's Day. On uh, on official church letterhead, maybe? No, that was the, the letter the guy wrote, so it isn't church letterhead, but it is Joseph Fielding Smith's signature next to the answer. Um, so 1963, which makes this statement not true. It, well, no, it, it does true. make it true. It makes it incomplete. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. While it is true that a few church leaders in the mid 1800s expressed their thank you expressed their opinions on the matter, it was not then and it is not now church doctrine. And who are you, Dale Bills, to tell us what is not in his church doctrine? I mean, well, my he's, goodness, he's in the same position that the church official speaking on the church's behalf about Tim Ballard was in, right? Like it's yeah, the Doug same. Anderson. Yeah, I think that same was his position. Name. Same position. So uh, these guys don't go off the rails. Fair Mormon has explained to us that when these guys speak, you can know that it can, it comes from the church. Um, first off, what do you think of Deseret News's quote here? Uh, the whole thing? From Dell Bills and, and maybe them responding to the Da Vinci Code. You know, it's interesting because this was uh, 1990. Was it 2006? It was 2006 that this was. It looks like it from the link. The, yeah, I'm looking up the date, 2006. Yep. Honestly, the church has been pushing away with all its might pretty much all the aspects of the church that make it uniquely Mormon and has been doing so for a number of decades. This is more than just not commenting on it. This is saying, no, we don't teach this. We don't believe this. This is not doctrine. Jesus was never married. And it's, and it's not even true. I mean, yeah, it's not doctrine in the sense that it's not in the family proclamation, okay? But the fact is, is that you have to be married to be exalted. Jesus is exalted. Therefore, what? Yeah. 
what would it take? What is, what do you need it? Where do you need it to be for it to be official doctrine? You need it well, to be something that the church isn't embarrassed of proclaiming. No, no, no. What I'm asking is in what sort of source would it need to show up for us to show the church was dishonest and that it actually was church doctrine? If it was, let me just throw out, if it was taught officially in a official curriculum manual, for instance, would you consider that sufficient to call it doctrine? Here's the thing, Bill. The thing is, is that uh, if you want to cut to the chase and get to the heart of the game, what is doctrine is what has not been controverted or rejected or disproven yet. That is what is doctrine. Once it becomes disproven or rejected, it was a policy. Does Dale Bills, spokesman for the church, saying something's not doctrine, have more weight than, say, I don't know, an official curriculum book inside the church? Oh, I'm so sorry. You were laboring toward a segue, and I wasn't even catching on. That's okay. Yeah. This, well, how about just Brigham Young sanctioning what Orson Hyde said? Does that in mean general anything? conference? It was Does like that two mean or three. Anything nowadays? Two or three general conferences. The leaders are teaching it and testifying of each other for teaching the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in this, and then you had Joseph Fielding Smith writing his personal answer on the bottom of a letter with a signature. And then you've got the gospel through the ages written by Milton Hunter of the first council of the 70. Um, This uh, says was written and published under the direction of the general priesthood committee of the council of the 12 of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Notice in the top right to the quorums of the Melchizedek priesthood. This was an official priesthood curriculum manual. That was also a book that you could buy on over the shelf on the shelf. Um, the gospel ordinances. This is the same idea you just taught. So this is zoomed out with the red boxes around the text. I'm going to zoom in now. The gospel ordinances. This is exactly what you just said. Operating in addition to, and as part of the natural laws are the gospel ordinances. They were instituted by God, the eternal father and his son, Jesus Christ, before man was placed on this earth for the purpose of assisting in bringing the sons and daughters of God back into their presence. Such ordinances as baptism, confirmation, temple ordinances, priesthood ordinations, marriage, marriage, and others are all part of the gospel plan of salvation. All of these principles and ordinances of the gospel are eternal. They were instituted before man was placed on the earth and are applicable to all human beings that live here. Now, next page. Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who has lived on the earth, was perfect because he obeyed all the principles and ordinances of the gospel in order that he might fulfill all righteousness. He thereby set a pattern of life for mortals to follow. If they obey all the principles and ordinances of the gospel, as did the master, their growth will continue until they attain eternal life in the kingdom of God. Not explicit. But sure as hell, implicit there is that Jesus Christ got married. Yeah, well, Tim's and got a go rebuttal back, here. Uh, this is all before correlation, Bill. So we can. Yeah, and I don't know if it's out. a rebuttal or an observation. <laughs> yes, yes. And Tim, you know, this is before correlation. I think this was 1945. I used to actually have a copy of this book. I bought it um, as a collector's item, and 
Uh, I don't think I ever read it. It was much more boring than I'd hoped it would be. It was basically trying to track down or identify elements of Mormonism and all these different religions and cultures of the world to show that, yeah, Mormonism goes back to the beginning and to Adam and everybody else is a devolution from the original. Um, but if you go back to that other page and you see how close in proximity these two paragraphs are, they're actually on facing pages, aren't they, in the same book? Yeah, you they can are. See, yes. Yeah. Boom, 20, boom. 18 and 19, page 18 and page 19. Both of those cannot be correct together without Jesus having been married. Right. And I was ready for Tim, by the way. So this he happened. Says it was an observation. Yeah. Yeah. I this was so. before correlation, but that doesn't matter. Here's why. Teachings of the living prophets. By the way, this manual is also outdated. It no longer says what it says here, but in the older edition, this is what it says. That's the current cover of the current edition. The older edition, I think, was an orange book. Uh, and it was a little thicker because a lot of things have been taken out since it's not all true anymore. But where does opinion end and official doctrine pick up? Quote, prophets have the right. Uh, oh, let me do this too. I'm going to I'm gonna put up the banner here shortly on uh, phone calls. Um, if, that, if that makes any sense. Let me grab my phone. Give me two seconds, folks. Sorry about that. I can see that we're ending the getting towards the close of the show and wanted to take the phone calls. And uh, make sure that we we covered that. I'll put the banner up in just a moment. Do you know um, who it was who wrote these words? Because these words make absolute sense. You know, this it's going to lead to an untenable, you know, it's going to lead to a lot of dead ends, you know, and brick yeah. walls. But it makes sense on its face to define things this way and not to always be built on the shifting sand that can make anything doctrine until you don't need it to be doctrine anymore. Would you like me to read this, Bill? Sure. Okay, so here is Teachings of the Living Prophets, page 21. Prophets have the right to personal opinions. Not every word they speak should be thought of as an official interpretation or pronouncement. However, their discourses to the saints and their official writings should be considered products of their official prophetic calling and should be heeded. You know something I'm going to back off of? I, I gave it a compliment, but that's before I read it all the way through. They're actually trying to have it both ways. What I thought they were going to say, which would have made sense, was, however, their discourses to the saints and their official writings should be considered doctrine. That would have made sense. But they beg off on the question altogether. They don't even come back to doctrine. All they're saying is, not everything they say is doctrine, but if they write it or say it in a discourse, even though we're not going to call it doctrine, you should do what they say. You should consider it products of their official prophetic calling and should be heeded. Now, if that gets interpreted to mean doctrine, then I agree with that. I think that's a good description, even though it's going to fall apart immediately like a house of cards in a swift wind it it is weird right like they say these guys are going to share their personal opinions they're going to get things wrong and you should always listen and follow it anyway yeah and that's where you have to get to the idea of you will be blessed if you do it's not whether it's right or wrong given from god or not speaking of by as a man or speaking as a prophet your job is not to question why. Your job is but to do and die. Yeah. 
So if we go back to the earlier leaders saying it in general conference and the president of the church giving a stamp of approval, it seems that these would be products of their official prophetic calling and should be heeded. So correlation really doesn't matter at what point it took place. Either prophet seers and revelators are what they claim to be. They have a uh, channel to God from his lips to their ears where they're able to declare his will, his truth, or they're just guessing and they get lots of stuff wrong and the historical documentary evidence shows that these guys have got it wrong over and over and over again, not because I decide they're wrong, but because the modern church now has an ongoing restoration and decides to disavow everything that has been taught before. Yeah. Um, before we go to the phone calls, I know you had one person specifically that you oh, were yeah. going to get to plug in. I did put the number in the uh, private chat. I'm not going to uh, let you forget the last temptation of Christ. It's like the last house on the left. That's where Jesus lives with his wife and kids. The last temptation of Christ. Um, this topic is such a small issue in Mormonism. It's certainly not going to cause anybody to stay or go. But it's one more, I think, clear example of the church talking out both sides of its mouth having lots of past prophet seers and revelators claim to know the truth and declare uh, their foot in the sand on, on one decree. And then the modern church from correlation on Tim uh, deciding that we don't want that. That's too embarrassing. It's too uh, indefensible. It's too contrary to science. It, it makes us look bad. It's, it's, uh, it's going to offend people and make them leave. It has on hundreds of occasions switched positions, and this is simply one more time it switched positions, which is why when we did an episode a few weeks ago and we said, how would you know that the LDS church isn't true? And my conclusion at the end is you'll never know because it doesn't matter how many things are contradicted, how many things they get wrong, how many times leaders lie, how many egregious, unethical things the leadership does believers will till the day they die justify all of it right on the flip side of that people ask me sometimes what is the smoking gun against mormonism and i tell them there is no smoking gun it can all be explained yes and once again if elder oaks now president oaks soon to be real president oaks if he can make an excuse for why it is back in the 1980s that it was okay for Joseph Smith to refer to the angel Moroni as a salamander, then apologists can explain anything. Yeah, perfect. Um, I have a phone call in the phone call, but I think that's it. I think the next slide is the... Do you remember the, the last temptation of Christ? <clears throat> I feel um, like Jiminy Cricket. No, no, please. I remember there was a movie made called that. I don't oh, you remember. Know. I sent you like right at the beginning when you said you were going to do this and I had looked it up and texted you the church's statement on the movie back in 1988. While you're looking for that, let me tell the audience, this is before Dan Brown, right? And uh, Da Vinci Code, which is like 2006 or so. But back in 1988, I think it was, there was a movie that was released. It was called The Last Temptation of Christ. And it, Willem Dafoe, played Jesus, and I think Barbara Hershey played Mary. And there's this whole idea behind it. I think it was based on a book that was written by a Catholic priest or something. The idea being 
that uh, Jesus is on the cross and he's about to die and uh, things are not going well for him. And I think it's a little child who comes up to the cross. And the last temptation of Christ is Jesus. Isn't this a lot of trouble? And isn't this a lot of bother? And these people really don't care about you. And you're coming to this horrible end. Wouldn't you rather just live a simple, normal life like anybody else? And so the majority, I think, of the movie has Jesus now in this altered state while he is or may not still be on the cross, but he's experiencing life as it could have been without him being this excuse me, apocalyptic Jewish preacher roaming the, the countryside with 12 other guys. Instead, he, he meets uh, Mary. Uh, they get married. They settle down. You know, there's kind of a sex scene in it. It's R-rated, not X-rated. And uh, I can't remember if they have kids. Now, at the end of it, as I recall, is that Jesus comes to himself, which is back on the cross, and he basically says it is finished, and he resists that temptation. That's the last temptation of Christ. I hope I'm remembering this accurately. If not, please forgive me. But the whole thing was that nobody cares about what the overall message of the movie is. They don't care what the last temptation of Christ is. They care about the fact that he's making the beast with two backs with Mary Magdalene. And that is what causes all the uproar and all the controversy. And the interesting thing was, by the way, just give me a sign or anything when you've got that ready to go, Bill. Um, otherwise, I'll just go on all night at tap dancing here. So I I uh, can't hear you now. I know. I'm trying to. Let me try something else. Okay. So I don't. Where did you send this to me? I'm not finding. Oh, this. on your on text. And was it just to me, or was it a text group with Maven as well? I can't remember. I'm and so what sorry. Would it, what would it look like? What is the? It would look like um, uh, an image that has the. Um, well, it's probably a week ago. A week or six days ago, maybe. Oh, okay. Um, so, and the the church decided to get involved, and this was the funny thing to me. Funny, peculiar, not funny. Ha ha, is that the church issues a statement, and that is rare for the church to do. But they issued a statement about this movie, and the thing about the movie that they issued the statement on was not was not. Um, yeah, this is kind of like what we think about Jesus, that he was married and uh, he had kids. And yeah, they uh, honored their marriage covenants by consummating the marriage. No, of course, they ran as hard as they could in the other direction. And they distanced themselves from the movie. And they said similar things about Jesus being married and doing all this stuff and how offensive that was. And I believe it also advised its membership to not go out and see this movie. So it's actually something coming out, discounting the movie for this reason, asking its membership to not go and see the movie. I didn't go and see the movie. It wasn't until much later that I, I saw the movie um, and found out what the heck it was all about. So we had the spectacle, which I recognized at the time, of a church that actually, I mean, the one Christian church that I'm aware of in the world that actually affirmatively believes and has taught, and it has been doctrine, that Jesus was married is kind of denouncing a movie in which Jesus is depicted as being married and basically being exactly what it is that Mormons actually believe that he was, even though it's only in this sort of flashback kind of alternate history, alternate reality, dream sequence of what life could have been like for him if he had gone that way. 
Um, I think I probably right. described this thing into oblivion. No, no, no. I, I think I finally have it. You bought oh, just enough time. Oh, my gosh. Is this, okay. Is this what we're talking about? Yes. LDS Church condemns controversial new movie. Date. Dateline. August 13th, 1988. By Deseret News. Once again, Deseret News, the source of all official church doctrine. All the church doctrine that's fit to print. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has issued a statement condemning the controversial new movie, The Last Temptation of Tim Ballard. No, The Last Temptation of Christ. This is 1988. Come on, Bill. Richard Lindsay now. <laughs> the Patsy of the Month. Managing Director of the Public Communications Department <laughs> of the LDS Church issued the following statement Friday. Quote, the film, The Last Temptation of Christ, is not the story of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who in Gethsemane and on Calvary took upon himself the sins of the world and rose from death with the promise of redemption for all. In our view, Richard Lindsay said, speaking for himself and, I don't know, the mouse in his pocket? In our view, this film trivializes the message and mission of Jesus Christ. We abhor the unconscionable portrayal of Jesus Christ in intimate sexual scenes, although we think he actually did them, but we, you know, we don't want to have them portrayed on film. And as a voyeur, men and women are left poorer by exposure, pardon the pun, to the stereotypes the movie portrays. As our name implies, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints revere Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Having experienced the uplifting power of his spirit, we encourage all people to truly seek the Savior and the eternal truths he taught and to shun those things that detract from the dignity and spirit of his divine mission. Wow. Isn't, isn't Mormonism one of the only Christian faiths that believe that Jesus Christ married and had sex with lots of women? Or at least one. I mean, it's the only one that I know of, but my knowledge of Christian sex is not encyclopedic, so I imagine there might be one or two offshoots out there. But honestly, yeah, this is the more this is the LDS church, the ones who the only Christian church of which I am aware that actually believe that Jesus was married, getting all hot and bothered about a movie that depicts Jesus as being married. And and don't they do the same thing in that other Deseret News article? Um, the one about the Da Vinci Code? Yeah, it, the, the belief that Christ was married has never been official, neither expressed. Uh, let me look up here higher. Fictional story focuses on the premise that Jesus married Mary Magdalene, fathered a child. Uh, I guess not. I guess he's just denying the get, marriage of it. I'm just confirming. We, we're wanting to get RFM's friend on the line. I think it's Trevor. In the it chat. is Trevor. Trevor actually has some anecdotal experiences yeah. along this line, which he's are fascinating. Saying he never, you never texted him the number or messaged him the number. Well, no, I didn't. So it's up now. It's it's up now. So if folks, if if you won't call in for Trevor, yeah, (laughs) just Trevor first. Just Trevor. Let Trevor get through first, and then the rest of you can fill up the lines. Nobody call. (laughs) Nobody call till Trevor gets through. Please. I apologize. I didn't text him. I'm sorry. I I like Martha have been busy and troubled with many things today. No, no, you helped me buy some time here. So, but at least (laughs) at the idea, like, hey. (laughs) um the criticism that we don't like this book because it portrays jesus as having been married and fathered a child and then in this other one that you mentioned we don't like the fact that it is uh speaking to the fact that jesus had some sexuality to him and you're portraying it when being married and fathering children 
and having a sexual component and having sex with at least one woman. And some of your leaders said lots of women. It, it seems like they're essentially saying like, don't talk about the things that we actually teach. Yeah. We keep them secret for a reason. Yeah. And we keep them secret to the point where eventually we end up publicly disavowing them and selling our birthright for a mess of pottage. I'm going to update the settings. I'm going to let a few more phone calls through, but I'm just, I'm telling you folks, I won't be taking 10 phone calls tonight. So I apologize. Marzipan says that she was in, oh, Marzipan Krabopoulos says she was in seminary in 1988. That was the same uh, year that movie came out. Last Temptation of Christ. We definitely talked about it. He was married. Jesus was a very much married man. Yeah. I'm waiting for a few more of the calls to come through. I'm sure Trevor's going to be there, but let me go ahead and take the first oh my call. Gosh. Unless you've got Tina something. says the last temptation of Christ was holy matrimony and fatherhood. I can see why that would be preferable to death by torture. If you had a choice between marriage and sex and dying on the cross for everyone's sins, I know which one I'm choosing. Yeah. It was a good temptation. That's why it was the biggest one. It was the last one. Awesome. All right. I'm going to take a couple of these calls until I see Trevor's calls come through. Um, let me update these a little bit again. I'm going to, I'm going to, you guys can fill the lines, but I'm telling you, I'm just he, not going to take all of those. He's in the queue. Okay. Well, we can so just go till we get to him. Which one it is. Trevor, you hang on there. We'll get, Oh, but that's why you were saying we're not taking 10 calls. Yeah. I was trying to make space for him and I just don't see him. Uh, I see, it looks like an Allen, a Luke and a Jack. So how about Luke? We can just, is it Luke? Yeah, it's. Or it could be that could be Luke from last week. Go ahead. Luke, Luke, it's Luke. Let's try it. Here we go. So I'll uh, let me unmute that. All right, caller, are you there? I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Am I speaking to? Sweet. Sweet. <laughs> Trevor. Yes. Are you? Where are you calling from? And I want you to tell as much or as little as you feel comfortable. I'm calling from the great state of Florida. And what is your position there? What do you do for a living, my friend? Well, uh, my uh, job is in the academy. Uh, I'm a university professor. Yeah, in classics, right? Yeah, that's right. I teach classics. Um, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in classics from BYU. And that's where we want and to take you. A master's degree in competitive work. Did, did you or yeah, did you not ever take a class taught by <laughs> Joseph Fielding McConkie? Fielding McConkie, yeah. yeah. Tell so, us about that and Holy Blood. Okay. Yeah, well, the, I actually have two BYU stories connected to Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Uh, one of them is a human bleed in an honors course on the proliferate price, he talked a lot one day about Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and that's what got me interested in going and buying this crazy book and reading it, where you learn that the descendants of Christ that came through the Merovingian dynasty in medieval Europe, and I thought that was unusual. And then Jesus Fielding McConkey, um, Bruce R. McConkey's son. I, I took a Doctrine and Covenants course from him, and he went through Section 86 with us. 
And I'm not saying that he taught us that uh, Jesus Christ is literally the Son of God uh, through the physical union of God the Father and Mary. And the very clear implication being here that the leaders of the church, uh, specifically the descendants of the Smith family, especially were descendants of Jesus Christ, which would also pull him into this group as well through his mother. So, yeah, coincidentally. Yeah. Coincidentally, he he didn't come out and say it explicitly, but if you were paying attention, it was very clear what he was bragging about. I'm sure humility forbade him to be explicit. Exactly. Well, no, far be it from him, right? (laughs) (laughs) Was there anything you wanted to share about George (laughs) Buchanan? Can we, sorry, so so some some of our listeners are having a hard time hearing. can you just restate <clears throat> what it was? It's Can you take your phone to it. Alabama? <laughs> Get a little closer. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me see if I can fix my sound. So, so what I got from that, or at least what I understood, was that, I mean, first of all, that this is Hugh Nibley, and that he, oh no, Joseph I've got the wrong person, right? Yeah. Hugh Nibley okay. was first. We talked yeah, about no, Billy Blood. Hugh Nibley. Yeah, it talks about Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Can you hear me better now? Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I don't know. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. You can't. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I can. Yes. You're I'm doing great. I'm phone carriers after this. Okay. So, yeah. Unibly, uh, he talks about Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which was published in 1982, by the way. And uh, still have my paperback copy from the 90s. I bought it in the 1990s after after I took the course with Nibley. And then Joseph Fielding McConkie taught a literal friendship of Jesus Christ that Heavenly Father and Mary got together in the usual way, of course, probably with Heavenly Miss. Ooh, so I don't know what happened there. Give me a second. Savior Jesus Christ. And then he also brought up Doctrine and Covenants section 86. And with the very clear implication that, you know, the brethren are heirs of this lineage, specifically the Smiths. And then, of course, he would be tied into that as Joseph Fielding McConkie. Yeah. And And then the the canon part. Were you going to talk about George Buchanan now? I was. and, And, you know, thank you for bringing that quote um, the Tanners did really good research on that. They dug out that Clausen entry that includes the canon quote. But so I, you know, I this was percolating in my mind, and I realized that I had a personal connection to uh, a descendant of George Q. Cannon. And one day I got up to the nerve to ask. You know, hey, because one, you know, casually brings up this kind of thing in conversation. You never heard anything about your family possibly being descended from Jesus Christ, have you? And I just thought, you know, the the reaction was going to be, "What are you crazy? (laughs) Who would who would 
who would ever say such a thing? But instead, to my shock and surprise, this person said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, yes. Um, and, and they said how one of their older relatives had said that their family was better than another family because they were descended from Jesus Christ. And I was absolutely floored. Couldn't believe, couldn't believe my ears, but, but that's what happened. Around when would this person that you spoke to, the descendant of George Q. Cannon, when would they have been born? Ooh, uh, of the early 1940s. Okay, so still pretty contemporary. Yeah, still pretty contemporary, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, this is, we're talking about uh, old Utah General Authority royalty living in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very aware of the post-manifesto continuation of polygamy into the mid-20th century. Um, so a person who's well-connected, who's worked for the church, um, is really tied into all of that. And, and, you know, and I have to say, um, is active in the church and holds the church very dear. I, you know, and I, I respect, I respect that. Uh, I nevertheless, I really, I was just going on a hunch and it's not the kind of thing that you would bring up in casual conversation ordinarily. Mm -hmm. Hey, were you descended from Jesus Christ perhaps? (laughs) 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 Yeah. So anyhow, yeah. So, and, uh, I, one last little experience that I've had with this, uh, idea, I would call it a doctrine. And even though it's not proclaimed doctrine now, uh, Michael Quinn's first volume of Origins of Power has this wonderful section on patriarchal priesthood on pages 32 and 33, uh, where he brings up section 86. Mm. Also, another good one is DNC 10740, which talks about how uh, the literal seed of uh, the patriarchs and the prophets of old are entitled to the priesthood today. That's 10740. Mm. But I was doing genealogical research in the Oaken Stake Genealogical Library after my mission, and I had read Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and I looked up above me in the genealogical library, and I saw this little poster on the wall that showed Brigham Young and Joseph Smith's genealogy traced through the Merovingian dynasties. (laughs) I kid you not. It was in the state genealogical library on the wall. And once again, I was pretty shocked, but I, I think it's pretty clear that, that this information has been out there and that people have taken it seriously. It's just been kind of on the down low as it were. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Talk about the divine right of kings. Well, right. So um, (laughs) the Holy Blood, Holy Grail argument, of course, is basically that, you know, the divine right of kings is justified by this idea of descent from Christ. Um, But it's preceded by divine right of kings, which is really anciently descended from this idea that you know, certain heroes who were claimed as ancestors of 
important families in the ancient Mediterranean were the children of the gods or uh, the children of unions between gods and heroes. Um, and, and really this phenomenon that we're looking at here, it has a rich anthropological history um, because in, in the ancient world, in the ancient Mediterranean, a way that you connected yourselves to others, and the Greeks were very good at this, was by creating false genealogies. Okay, to, to say that people that you encounter who seem to be something like you in your travels, well, they must be descended from one of the heroes who wandered the Mediterranean after the Trojan War. Hmm. Or like, they may be descendants of, what, go ahead? Like the genealogies for Jesus in Matthew and Luke. Yeah, right. Okay, and, and uh, you see uh, in medieval times this uh, tendency to make these genealogies continues. And you even have royal houses of Europe that trace themselves back to the Trojan hero, Aeneas, who hmm. was, of course, believed by some Romans to be the founder of their people. And, and I think in the 19th century, you just have this continuation of this idea that you know, we're important people. Uh, we're, um, we can trace our lineage back to, and, you know, updating for a change of religion. Uh, <laughs> we can trace ourselves back to uh, the apostles, back to Christ himself. And that's how we uh, sort of get our sense of legitimacy and communicate that legitimacy for our authority to others. Right. But as, as you know, you know, Joseph Smith was actually uh, proclaiming the importance of his genealogy all the way back in the Book of Mormon. Second Nephi 3. Uh, in the prophecy that a Joseph... Yeah, the Joseph who was the son of Joseph, uh, descendants of Joseph in the latter day would bring forth. Okay, and, and uh, you know, the, the first revelation on Joseph Smith's patriarchal priesthood was received in 1832. So it's, it's not a theme that pops up later. I think it was the importance, the lineage that Joseph Smith had, and that which Brigham Young also recognized, if you look on uh, page 33 of Quinn's uh, uh, book, you know, Brigham Young himself stated that Joseph Smith had the priesthood by blood. He didn't need the priesthood to be restored by the laying on of hands. Uh, they believed that Joseph Smith's lineage had a right to the priesthood, but that priesthood according to Quinn, and I think his argument's pretty good, uh, would be the patriarchal priesthood rather than Melchizedek priesthood. Mm. It's like when it came to priesthood, Joseph Smith wanted to wear belt and suspenders. <laughs> oh, definitely. He, ha he had to have every beanie pin, every award, uh, every role. He had to be the man in charge, the big cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Trevor, thank you so much for calling well, thank in. You. I apologize. Uh, we've got other people who may who want to. Do we have other people on the line, Bill? Of course. We've got one more. Oh, we've got one more. Okay. Well, you know, 
Trevor, thank you. We're going to have you on the show sometime as an actual guest, but thank you for showing up and for giving us this great information about the subject of tonight's discussion about Jesus's kids and his lineage and the Holy blood. I was just so impressed at the job that you guys did. Your research was fantastic. And thank you for sharing it with us. Well, thank you. I have to give all the kudos to Bill Real for the research tonight. He did a great job. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Take it easy. Thank you. All right. Take Bye. Bye-bye. And then the other call caller we have, looks like maybe it is a gentleman by the name of Jack. So we'll see here. Uh, Jack, are you there? Oop. Let's try again here. Something, it's just got an hourglass spinning, so we'll see if this works. There we go. Jack, are you there? I'm right here. All right, my friend. Go ahead. You're on Mormonism Live. Sounds like the same guy, RFM. Sounds like he's closer than Florida. I think it's yeah, Trevor again. closer than Florida. <laughs> well, I want to thank Trevor. He had a great segue for what I wanted to comment. He talked about, I guess, the blood Joseph Smith giving this... him the priesthood. Jack, you sound just like Trevor. You guys, I'm thinking you, this was a trick to try to call in twice. <laughs> I'm just no, no, I can no, I can tell the Trevor. difference. <laughs> We've definitely got a, a southern twang on Jack. Go ahead, my friend. The, the reason for my call is that you guys were looking in Doctrine and Covenants about a scripture that said the priesthood was on the earth from the beginning and there's a secret people and it never left. Yeah, 86. And I thought, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I may have a line on the answer to that. Mm. Um, there's Abraham, there's Melchizedek. We know Melchizedek had the power of God, right? And uh, they're Jewish, aren't they? A little bit. I think Mel- Melchizedek precedes pre- the Jew. Melchizedek precedes the Jews. He precedes Abraham and therefore necessarily oh, precedes oh, the Yeah, Paul made a lot of that in oh, his letters. Okay. Well, I stand corrected there. I, I wasn't aware that Melchizedek wasn't a Jew. Um, but Moses, wasn't he a Jew? Uh, Moses, well, it, it depends on how you define it. He's certainly uh, uh, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Technically, he's in the tribe of Levi, so he's a Levite, as opposed to being from the, the tribe of Judah. But within the general sense of being a, a Semite or a descendant of Shem, yeah. Well, then maybe my... Uh idea won't work but the the crux of my idea is if the jews or even the levites had the priesthood and the jews have never been you know they had a covenant with god they're actually god's original covenant people um i know in the lds church they say they're the covenant people but um they've never left the face of the earth and they never stopped practicing their religion you're talking so, about the Jews now, right? When did they? Yeah, I'm talking about the Jews that that, yeah. that are right now. They're having a war over there. Yeah, the same Jews. They're the they still practice their religion and they they haven't been wiped off the earth. So why 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 did they lose the priesthood? Why would they lose the power to act in God's name? I mean, it would have been here the whole time. Okay, now. Um, Jack, you're going from the supposition that they ever actually had a power of the priesthood in the first place? Yeah, I am. And I'm well aware that uh, I've talked to some rabbis and they don't even ascribe to having a priesthood power. Right. Well, most of the things that that were associated with the most of the things that were associated with the priesthood in the religion of Judaism had to do with the temple and the temple uh, rites. And once the temple got destroyed, the priesthood, I think, became less 
of an issue to um, uh, the Jews and the one that survived. Okay, never mind. The one that survived, okay. The one that survived is the one that could survive without a temple and without a homeland. And that was the one that was focused on the scriptures itself. So basically, it's my understanding, the Pharisees who get booed and hissed at in the New Testament are the ones that actually were responsible for the preservation of Judaism. So does that mean that their power is amend? I mean, no, it just means that, that they, I mean, they had the book show, and the book is transportable. I see. Well, then I guess my argument doesn't really hold up there at all. Um, that's very interesting. But the one thing, the one thing I would like to say, when I, when I read the scripture, like in Omni 1, and it talks about the brass plates, and that uh, it has the record of the Jews, and then like Alma 37, it says, and uh, in the brass plates, it talks about the Savior and Redeemer of the world. When I look through the Book of Mormon through a Jewish lens, there's just a lot of stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. There just isn't. And then the other thing that's kind of confusing for me is, you know, I, I was, you know, raised LDS and we're the one true church. But I mean, um, President Nelson, I believe it was December 2021, went to Israel and made a video and said, Jesus, one day will return there. Hmm. And why is it that Jesus is returning to Israel if the LDS church is the true church? Why isn't he returning to Salt Lake City or Jackson County, Missouri? And why is everyone, Christian and Mormon alike, looking at Israel to build a third temple? And we're all waiting with bated breath. Um, it doesn't, it kind of exempts the Jews from actually having to obey the requirements of the LDS church. Like when uh, uh, President Nelson says you have to be baptized, you have to be married, you have to have faith, you got to do all the seals and all that. But the Jews get to have Jesus return to them. They get to feel the hand, his wounds in his body. That requires no faith. They get proof. So they're clearly exempted from the requirements of Mormonism. So the Mormons say they're the true church, but they, in my view, and I might be wrong, but I think that's the Achilles heel, that the Jews are the Achilles heel of the LDS church. They're exempt, and Jesus returns to them without obeying not one principle of the LDS church. Right. Well, they are his people. This is his family. And in Mormonism, I think in most of Christianity, Jesus's second coming is like an event, right? I mean, it happens and you know, it happens yes. because there's only one time that it happens, whether it's in Jerusalem or Jackson County or, you know, Utah, when it happens, it's going to happen. Everybody's going to know what's happening. In Mormonism, Jesus's second coming is less of an event and more like, um, it's more like a tour. Okay. Like if you've got a rock concert and it's touring from city to city all over the place, that's what Jesus oh, really? second coming is in Mormonism. First off, first stop is a sacred grove in 1820. And there's going to be, uh, apparently there are visits that are ongoing right now in Salt Lake city. If we take Wendy Watson Nelson at her word from January of 2017, there's going to be a stopover tour over in Adam on Diamond where there's going to be another second coming of Jesus. So Jesus is second coming all over the place in Mormonism. And it's hard to say exactly which one is his real second coming. But I expect that Mormons would end up saying it's all of them together that constitute his second coming.
because that's the yeah. way they typically roll. Yeah. Ch Jack, I'm going to – Well, Oh, go ahead, my friend. I just want to say this really quick. It was my understanding my mom taught me when I was younger that they're going to meet the apostles and uh, the prophet in Jackson County, Missouri, in the temple and return the keys and do that. And that's like the little mini secret meeting. But it's not really the second coming because the whole world doesn't see that occur. So I understand that can be a, a doctrine in the Mormon faith, a belief. But to claim that as a second coming is not really coinciding with Armageddon and uh, all nations uniting against Israel and all well, those. Well, that's true. Things. That's true, Jack. And but that's only I, if you import. Saying, but Jack, that's only if you already import into the idea of a second coming all those other ideas. I mean, if it's Jesus so you're right. it's coming yeah. a second time to the earth, then yeah, that's a second coming. No, you're right. I, I agree. But is everyone going to know about it when he goes to Jackson County to meet the twelve? My understanding Does it make is a difference. A secret meeting. It's you not... see, you're, I think. I think now, Jack. I'm just talking about. By the way, I don't believe in any of this. Okay, I don't believe that I Jesus understand. is coming back. I have a belief that he probably actually existed once, for a limited period of time, with a 33 year shelf life, and then he got in trouble because he decided he was going to stick it to the man, and the man said, "We're going to stick you on a cross," and that was the end of Jesus. I don't think he's coming again. Okay. It's been 2000 years. He's okay. had a lot of time and he's overdue. So I don't think he's coming again. So I don't believe any of this. And I'm just talking with you hypothetically about things and about Mormonism. Okay. Now you're watching Mormonism live, Jack. Are you a believer still in Mormonism? And if you are, that's fine by me. I support everybody in whatever path they're on. You know, um, to be honest, I, um, I I have a lot of doubts about the uh, veracity of of the church. Do you think um, Jesus is I coming again, Jack? Um, I'm not. I'm not going to run out and become a, a you know a, a, a sinful person and be a bad person to other people. I believe in the golden rule, um, but I, uh, I I I don't. I, I can't return to the church. I mean, I'm not out, but I just sort of I'll just leave it be because I don't really want any conflict with them. But I, I find that my, my own thinking and my own thoughts and my own study, there's just a lot of questions that aren't answered. And my uncle once said to me, sometimes we're not allowed to know all the answers. And so... Well, no, and that's a cheap out, around. isn't it? That's a cheap out. We don't know it the is, answers, which means we don't out. have any faithful answers. Okay, let's be clear about that first, Jack, right? And I'm not arguing with you. I'm on your side talking to your uncle. Okay. It's not that there are no answers. Oh, I get it. It's that there are no answers that will be consonant with our religious convictions. There are answers that are not consonant with our religious convictions, but we tend to just rule those out of bounds at the outset. So those are not even under consideration. So the only answers that are consonant with our religious convictions, in other words, that are faith-promoting, there are no answers that are faith-promoting to certain issues within the LDS Church, and I agree with you. But then to say, oh, well, because there are no answers because there are no answers. It's kind of tautological. Dan, you know Dan what I mean? Hardy. Dan Hardy's on the screen. He, he, Jack, if you don't really want to take yeah. FM's answer for it, you can direct message well, Dan I want to Hardy thank him. and he'll give you, he'll give you the gospel truth. No, you see, can you see your screen, Jack, right now? Can you um, see me? Let me, uh, 
Look yeah, on the screen. You. There's a special message for you. Dan Hardy there, who works Dan out Hardy. a lot. Dan wears tight shirts and he works out a lot. He looks hey, very Jack, good. direct message me. His name's Dan Hardy. Yeah, Dan Hardy yeah. is a believer in the church who knows all of it's a mess, but still has a really cool way of putting it all together. Yeah. And he thinks he can solve all of your gospel questions. Dan Hardy could play. Well, too. I don't I don't think I'm gonna I don't think I'm gonna be able to return, but I do want to thank RFM for your high intellectual insight and in, uh, giving me an answer yeah. to some of these uh, 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 questions that I don't have answers for. I appreciate that. Well, you're that. very welcome. But the whole thing, the first thing, Jack, is I would say, and get Dan Hardy's take on this too. I certainly uh, suggest you get second and even third opinions. I'm not the sole source of all truth, far from it. But it typically turns out that when there are no answers to a gospel question, and the response to it is, oh, well, I guess God doesn't want to have all the answers. That is not an adequate response. It sounds a lot like this. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. <laughs> yes. Those will, I think, be the ones we avoid. I uh, gave a talk. Jack, thank you very much. I'm going to let you go, my friend. Thank you, Jack. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm actually going to end... Uh, that. So Dan Hardy's come over to YouTube to make comments here now. I'm glad. I hope Jan Dan stays in YouTube. And uh, I don't know if he was, was he in YouTube or was it a Facebook comment? He was doing Facebook stuff that didn't come over. And you were asking he's, him to come to YouTube to interact. He still doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, Maven said that was a Facebook comment. Dan said oh. he would come to YouTube. But Dan is scared of what will happen if he comes into the YouTube. <laughs> with that all body, the Dan's not scared of anything. Let me tell you. <laughs> he could bench press me. So... So something the guy said, it struck a, a chord with me in terms of my memory about Mormonism. When what I was taught in the 90s, and I know you were taught this to RFM in, in uh, the previous decade, is that there will be a moment in time where two of our prophets or apostles will go into Jerusalem and they'll get killed. They're going to lay on the ground dead for three days or whatever, and then they're going to reanimate. And then, and then, and that sort of is one of the steps that has to happen for Christ to return. Right, because he ain't coming back without those two. Oh my gosh! I would hope he would be one of them. You hope prophets. They're two prophets. No, not hope. I always thought Holland would be one of them, just because he did so much to get the Jerusalem Center going. So yeah, it just made, and he he goes there a lot. So it made sense to me that if if it did happen in my lifetime. that you know, Holland is one that that goes there a lot, and it the, could be him. But it's can like, I just tell you about the two prophets dying in Jerusalem and then being th- dead for three days while everybody celebrates, and then they're raised on the third day, and everybody goes, "What?" <laughs> First off, it's that was like, crazy. was it going to be missionaries? You know, but the apostle said, "No, this isn't going to be just any flunky missionaries no. getting killed no, and no. then raising on the third day. This is going to be apostles, damn it!" Well, I'd it's like to know which of, the two are going to volunteer. Yeah, I wish I want the two of them to volunteer. Which two? And this is this is the, one of the strains that I love in the book of Revelation, right? Because that's, of course, where it comes from, is we've got a book that is entirely symbolic. And I think most people would understand that this book is ragingly symbolic. But every religion, Mormonism not accepted, will look into this ragingly symbolic sea of symbolism and extract certain elements that they want to read literally. And that's one of them in Mormonism. I don't know if others believe this literally. They probably do. But it's a symbolic thing. But anyway, in Mormonism, it's going to be two apostles. That's what it's come to be, yes, who are actually going to be in Jerusalem, going to be killed, going to lie there for three days, and then going to be resurrected. 
and all that's happening as a sign before Jesus comes. And the reason I brought it up is because there's this other teaching in Mormonism, which is that when Jesus comes back, he will return to both and rule both locations. He'll rule New Jerusalem and he'll rule Israel with the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to find it online. I don't, I don't know that this, again, I've been out of Mormonism for a little bit. I don't know that this is taught anymore. And I can't find any of the teaching online about this, about the two prophets laying dead in the street, number one, and about mm-hmm. Jesus coming back and ruling Jerusalem and New Jerusalem as part of his second coming. Well, if you go to volume three of Bruce R. McConkie's Doctrine on the New Testament there. Commentary, I'm sure it will be there, where it discusses <laughs> this passage from the book of Revelation. Usually what happens in order to get ruling from Jerusalem and from Jackson County has to do with a strained interpretation of a verse from Isaiah, I believe it is. And Isaiah is using, as he does throughout his writings, he's using parallelisms to express what he's saying, which means he's saying the same thing in two different ways, back to back. And that was considered, you know, a thing. That was kind of an art form, poetic form amongst the Hebrews. So he says, the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem or maybe says the law from Jerusalem and the word of the Lord from Zion. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. But the LDS church has interpreted that as meaning two completely different things and designating the locations which will be the capitals from which the Lord rules the earth, Jerusalem and Zion, interpreted in the LDS context as Jackson County, Missouri. Maven? Yes? Oh, sorry. Maybe I did I, that. There you go. Yeah. I. What are we doing? Sorry. I don't know. You're there, and usually when you're there, you no, have something I, you want to add. No, I don't know. No, I've just it. been throwing stuff up. I. I don't know. I saw you. Show, you had a note so about a shout out. I just was checking to see oh, if you wanted. Oh, I did. Yeah, if that's okay, I did want yeah, to please. say because we. I teased it before on the show that I did a collab with Peter Bleakley about hmm. the an episode with uh, Michelle Stone from 132 Problems and Brian Hales. And it was super fun. It's six hours long. So, you know, you know what you're getting into. But it was really fascinating. And I, we had a blast. And, uh, and apparently a few other diehards um, have had a blast watching it. So it is finally released. It's It's been out there. So I just I'm one of the views out. on that. Oh, thank you. All six hours. Um, <laughs> All good. All part good. of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you, there's been people who've been taking it in chunks, but I'm yeah, working I mean, on it's it. It's Peter and I. Yeah, yeah. I'm working on there it. There you go. <laughs> By the way, I can guarantee if two of the top 15 want to raise their hand and volunteer to go over there right now, it's a little hairy over there. It's a great time if you want to lay dead in the street for three days. Um, yeah. My, my, I can guarantee you that whichever two of you raise your hand and go over there and end up dead in the streets, you'll just stay dead. It's, this this thing doesn't work the way you think it does, uh, and and they pretty much admitted as much by, you know, priesthood power. They don't go to the primary hospital to spend time. Lamanites mm. are now you know among the descendants. Book of Abraham now needs a catalyst theory. The leaders of the church have self admitted that they don't really believe any of this either. Well, lying dead in the streets for three days isn't the problem. No, no, it's That's the reanimating. No, no, it's the yeah. reanimating part. It's which it's when you get to the fourth day and the fifth day. That's when it. Yeah. By and, the way. Speaking of Michelle Stone, which Maven just did in her yeah. podcast, 130 Problems, which we used to have something almost to do with, but never did. <laughs> um, 
No, you know, I had raised, and I'm not going to go through it again because I've had my field day with this. My interest in it was brief and it has waxed cold now. But I put forward the argument in various uh, places about the three affidavits from the Nauvoo Expositor and how this seems to me to be a very, very clean evidence that Joseph Smith, actually, I should say that Doctrine and Covenant Section 132, as we have it today, something substantially similar to it in all material respects existed before Joseph Smith died. Okay, that was the premise. Yeah. And, you know, Michelle Stone has been claiming she's been answering this, but what she's done is apparently she's produced or is in the process of producing a four-part podcast on the subject, and they're each like two hours long. I mean, eight hours, and this is ridiculous. I made the mistake of watching the first one and I watched it to see if she was ever going to come up with an answer. No, she didn't because she spent the entire time trying to denigrate the character of the three people who signed the affidavits in the Nauvoo Expositor without apparently realizing it doesn't make any difference what their character is. That has nothing to do with the argument. They could be the blackest hearted scoundrels in history. And the fact is that those words appear that they wrote in the Nauvoo Expositor on June 7th, 1844. It's the words and why it was they knew the words, they knew the contents of what we have today as section 132 as of June 7th, 1844, when Joseph Smith was still alive. So that kind of soured me on wanting to listen anymore because she seems intent on chasing every irrelevant detail and extrapolating upon it endlessly. So, Allegedly, somewhere in this eight-hour mess of verbiage, there is an answer to the question that I raised. But I don't think it's fair to expect me to have to wade through it all in order to find out what it is. So if Michelle wants to just bring it up, I mean, five minutes, that's all you need. Give it to me in a five-minute form, and then I can consider it and analyze it and see whether it... Um, accounts for the evidence in a reasonable way. Bill, you, you have a look on your face. You, well, the look on my face is because you just said it's not fair to be expected to watch eight hours. But remember, this is the same person who said they weren't going to give us their counter argument, that they had put enough out there and that we could just go back and watch everything they oh, had yeah. put out to know their side of the argument. And like you said, there's just not enough. This isn't my gospel hobby horse. And uh, I try to cover a, a little bit of everything. I think we do it really damn well. Um, like you said, Michelle, please give RFM the timestamp and which one of the four two-hour pieces it is. And he'll watch the you know short clip of where the answer is. But unfortunately, I feel like you often never get around to it. And right. it, it, we can do better than that. Like we can just answer questions. She can't. Yeah. Now, Maven, by and the I way, your, your, yeah, your discussion with Peter Bleakley is all about... Yeah. Uh, Michelle Stone's what discussion with what's uh, uh, Brian Hales. With Brian Hales. Yeah. And what I thought he when says, I saw that was, I thought what happened things. with Brian, I'm sorry, I, I'll complete this. And I'll let you go. What happened with Brian Hales is exactly what happens, Michelle, when you don't talk with the other side and agree on what's going to be talked about and in what order you just leave it open. So Brian Hales well, comes no. in with this. What? No, I'm, I'll correct you, RFM, because yeah. they did. They actually did talk a lot. So Brian they, from what I understand, they had a plan, and Brian was supposed to bring the evidence for Joseph practicing polygamy, 
but he instead flipped it and made it into a lecture and a PowerPoint presentation, um, basically trying to assert authority over her. It's it's shocking. It's really, I and I know, and I, well, I came on actually because we were, I had just said like, we I put out this episode that's six hours long and then, and then you were responding with like, I can't listen to eight hours of Michelle. So I just wanted to say the episode I did with Peter Bleakley is not something we're expecting anybody to watch, to like answer anything. It's just a fun discussion between friends who are fascinated at that episode. And Michelle, I think she, I overall she holds her own and uh, Peter and I are kind of rooting for her the whole time. It, it's fascinating. Brian Hales really does not come out looking very good. And she yeah. has knowledge that he has too, but with a normal, I think regular average member of the church, he can count on them not knowing that he can't with her because she did know. And so it just shows, it just showed how mm-hmm. on, dishonest he was. And he had quite a few hot takes. So I, 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 I recommend it, but I, I'm I'm biased. So, yeah, I think you, anyway. you and Peter have a nice uh, energy going between the two of you, a nice rapport, the way you talk to each other, with each other. Good, good. I'm glad you think so. I had a blast, and he says he did too, so I, I believe it. So, And I'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, either tonight or tomorrow morning, so when folks want to find that, I'll make it easy for you. And... Uh, much appreciated. I, I think that's a great Thanks. conversation to sort of understand multiple arguments that are going on in, in that conversation. So cool. All right. Um, anything else from you, RFM? No, I'm going to figure out what is going to happen next week. Next week is going to be October 25th. It will be the last Wednesday before Halloween. Something seasonal may be in order. And I'm considering an idea of having Mormonism live coast to coast in honor of Art Bell and letting people call in with their spooky Halloween ghost stories. Only true ghost stories, of course. I love it. And uh, we'll follow up. I think we've got perhaps Cody Brown from Sister Wives and Paul Toscano uh, in the next couple of weeks. uh, Two out of the next three weeks after that one next week. So super excited, folks. I'm going to end the show uh, with one more quote from uh, a leader. And so everybody appreciate all of you uh, appreciate the donors. Please like, and subscribe, please like, and subscribe, please donate a few bucks a month. That deeply helps us. And thank you to every one of you who support us. Thanks again to the couple who uh, made this uh, new equipment possible. And we're deeply appreciative of that as well. Uh, We'll sign off here and see you guys all uh, next week. Let me find it. I remember, not too long ago, I began to dive into the church history. There, I began to find things contrary to what was taught to me while growing up in primary. On one occasion, I read an account that struck me as odd. I brought this account to my dear bishop, and there I told him of my doubts. He looked at me, and with a twinkle in his eye, he said, Tommy, you must know. You must doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Close quote. I looked at him, and with a twinkle in my eye, I told him, Why, Bishop, that's complete bullshit.